I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast one of the masterminds, founders of the Lincoln Project, Reed Galen. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Reed, you are based in Park City, Utah, and you said to me, you haven't won anything yet, um, although certainly the nation is ecstatically uh, happy and, and engaged in your important educational media that you're producing at the Lincoln Project. Um, w will it ultimately be a, a testament to your success if, if you can win a state like Utah? I mean, I ask that because you're in Utah, but sure. in all seriousness, how are you going to measure the ultimate success of the Lincoln Project? Uh, well, I think there, there'll be two milestones. One, um, watching Donald Trump be defeated on election day this coming November. And secondly, watching Joe Biden take the oath of office uh, next January 20th. If those two things are met, uh, then I think we will consider the Lincoln Project, Project a success. Um, all the other things that come along with it, the advertisement, the newspaper articles, all of that are fine. Um, but, you know, we don't get complacent. We don't get lazy. And we, we you know, don't believe our own press clippings. We got a lot of work left to do here the next hundred and however many days. Um, and so, you know, the ultimate, you know, just like they say, no poll counts until Election Day. I think we agree with that. It's interesting you define those two milestones as an election day, night, week victory, a clear mm -hmm. electoral college victory for Biden, and then, you know, the inauguration of Biden. Mm -hmm. Because Trump has proven so ill-suited and um, antithetical to our value system, it's not necessarily clear that he will concede step one in those two milestones could happen and it could be a challenge to achieve step two. Are you more concerned about getting the electoral college victory and making sure that it's commanding victory or more concerned about what happens after election day? Well, I think that what happens on election day will dictate a lot of that. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, my concern is that you've already started to see him do this um, is, you know, with the vote by mail stuff is that he is trying to already inject uh, illegitimacy into the system vis-a-vis -vis the people that support him. Uh, he did the same thing in 2016, right? This is not a new, this is not a new thing for him. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that's why we work so hard every day and we hope that everybody else is too. And anybody who wants to see the country on a much better path than it is today gets out there and votes because we want to make sure that on election night, even if it takes a few days to you know count the rest of those ballots that it's clear that trump is overwhelmingly defeated both in the popular vote which is fine but the electoral college most importantly and then i think you know from our perspective we will do everything we can within our power and our scope and our purview to ensure that the you know the transition period between election day and um and you know the inaugural um is goes the way it is supposed to from a political perspective obviously we should not expect that Donald Trump or his administration will be particularly helpful to uh, an incoming Biden administration. And frankly, we shouldn't expect they could be even if they wanted to, because there's like six people that work there. And I don't think any of them even know how to turn the lights on. <laughs> right. So in getting to election day and an outcome, by the way, do you think that Utah and, and states that have previously been off, you know, the electoral map of consideration for Democrats, you think that, that, those states are in contention this cycle? 
uh, I think in Utah would be very difficult. Um, if, if Joe Biden wins Utah, it's probably because he wins like 47 states. And I just don't. I mean, as much as I think that he has the opportunity to really, um, you know, change the game on Election Day, um, I think Utah is a tough nut to crack. It's a very conservative state. Um, you know, it's, it's got, um, I think there's 13% Democratic registration. Independents are a strong force, but I just don't, I think that would be, that would, that would be amazing to me. And I, I've thought, I think I've seen a lot of amazing things. You know, the, but you do think that a consensus map, even more boldly consensus than 2008 is, is, is plausible. So whether that is Georgia, Texas, you know, some, some, some states that have been out of reach for Democrats might be within reach for Biden. Uh, I think so, but simply because, um, you know, the dynamics have shifted so much, not only between the candidates running, certainly. Um, I think that the vice president has a long history of politics and political leadership in this country, but is not as nearly uh, defined as Hillary Clinton was and wasn't, isn't nearly the mythological figure she was for so many Republicans. Um, and secondly, I think that in the last, you know, six months plus, we've seen the president's, you know, just abject failure on COVID, uh, the, you know, the, you know, the corresponding economic crisis, and then ultimately the racial tensions around the killing of George Floyd. He has just shown himself continually to be unable to do the job. And, and I think that a lot of Americans, even many probably who supported him in, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, good faith in 2016, that he could do something. Um, have now decided, you know, maybe the, the the curtain has been pulled back from The Apprentice on this deal. Absolutely. So getting to Election Day means getting to a VP um, announcement and through potential debates. So those are two events that could be momentous in in furthering the trajectory Biden is on right now in his favor or potentially changing the game in some way that, that could be inimical to him. And, and do you see it that way? Or do you see some, you know, again, the pandemic is an ongoing reality of American political life and life in general, but, you know, there could be things that we can't consider as game changing events, but those are the two obvious ones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think so. And they'll be with us for a long time. Um, you know, we, we are facing, as I said, a, a trio of crises in this country, um, two of which are directly related to one another. Uh, the third, which has been bubbling for, you know, years, if not decades. Um, and yeah, and they're all going to be with us. And they're all earth shaking uh, in their own ways. They're all game changing in their own ways. And I think that, you know, we are now in the midst of a, a an inflection point to use like a corporate buzzword in which whatever comes next is probably at a right angle to what came before. And I think that a lot of our, um, you know, political institutions, I think a lot of our economic institutions, media and otherwise have not yet caught up to that fact. Um, but I'll tell you this, that that path is, is interminably darker and uglier and rougher with Donald Trump at the helm for four more years than it is with Joe Biden. You know, and right. his, and his folks will have to come in and do a heck of a lot of work just to clean up the mess of, you know, the 11 months or the year before them, uh, you know, so they can try and get to work and, and really, you know, get the country back on some sort of footing 
that's going to, as I said, is going to be dramatically different than the thing that we've experienced for the last, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. In terms of what could go wrong, though, in the Lincoln Project's role in ensuring that the storylines that media will be tempted to use, you know, in the case of a VP where a question arises or some, something that is small potatoes relative to the failed pandemic response and all the murder and incompetence um, that uh-huh. we've experienced. You know, you've, you've been extremely diligent and, and masterful in emphasizing that, the culpability when it comes to the corruption and incompetence and neglect and, and evil, mm-hmm. um, as you and John Weaver would say, of, of this administration. Uh, but when it comes to those two political events, the, the VP selection um, and the debates, uh, what will be Lincoln Project's role in, in helping shape the, the public's consciousness around them? Because those, those are two events or two moments in this campaign mm-hmm. that could turn the trajectory away from Biden in some way if he's not if he's not careful. I mean, we hope not, but it could happen. So, what do we do to prepare for those two events? Uh, well, first, I mean, regardless, I mean, everybody always makes a bigger deal out of the vice presidency um, than it ends up being because ultimately people vote the top of the ticket, not the bottom. Um, secondly, I mean, I would say that you know regardless of who the vice presidential nominee is, it's, there's going to be, you know, to your, I think your sort of su- more subtle point, like I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of tweets of mine from the last year, you know, bashing their campaign or their policy proposals. And, you know, those will have been legitimate political arguments at, at that point in time. And I'll tell you, you know, if somebody says, well, you said this and I'll say, yeah, that was April of 2019. We're in a, we're in a different world now. Like this person, can this person be like a competent president? Is the answer yes, then okay, <laughs> right? Like, um, and so I think that that's, you know, that's on the VP front. And, you know, our job is to help, um, you know, not only defeat Donald Trump, but where we can help Joe Biden. And if that means that, you know, he picks someone who I assume will be a very competent choice, uh, then, you know, it's still better than Donald Trump or Mike Pence. There's just not going to be any question. Uh, on the debates, I think you'll see, you know, from our perspective, one, I don't even know if Trump will do it, right? Um, I just, uh, you know, he's so far back on his heels. He might do it just because he, he believes that the only way he can do it is sort of throw the, the uh, whatever that was called. Remember the last Starfighter when they do the Blossom, the Fire Blossom, <laughs> right. whatever that thing is in the spaceship from the 1980s? Yeah. Like, I assume yeah, the, that's what he'll point at Biden. The galactic if I were, kitchen sink. <laughs> right. And if, yeah. I were, if I were Biden, every time he did that, I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. Like I wouldn't even engage with him. <laughs> right. It's going to be such a land of crazy talk. Um, but I think from our perspective, you know, we'll do what we do best, which is we move fast and we hit hard and we, we respond and then we counterpunch and we move fast and we hit hard again. And so I think, you know, wherever the president is, whatever it is he's doing, whatever he's saying, you know, we will be there to ensure that the American people get the clearest illustration of just what that behavior and those words mean uh, for, their, for their lives, frankly. My fear has been you've produced so much excellent content, and I refer to them not as political ads, but educational media, because they really, <laughs> they really are. Um, you should you know, take, take to the political bank uh, what you will, but, but um, this is like Mr. Rogers or Sesame Street for adult uh, political theater. I mean, it's, it is educational, read, and, and you and your colleagues deserve 
great commendation for, for that. Um, knowing that, um, are you at all concerned about, I asked John the same question, the desensitivity, uh, desensitizing the public. Um, it, you're suggesting that all the frivolous nonsense that usually would accompany the theatrics of debates and presidential politics, when you have a body bag, which will be you know, without any care or competence in the next months, you know, 200,000, 250,000 more American deaths, all that frivolous nonsense is just that. And the American people will see it as just that. Well, I think they're feeling it already, right? I mean, if you think about this, before the coronavirus made its way to our shores, you know, it was, I mean, we all lived in an analog world, right? Like our, our bodies are tangible. Um, we eat and it's tangible. We get in our car and it's tangible. But for the most part, when we're stationary, up until now, you know, our lives could exist in exactly the place that we wanted them to exist, which was whatever information we were consuming at the time, whether or not it's CNN or Facebook or Fox News or, you know, any of the social media outlets, you know, you could block everything else out. The problem with coronavirus and, and maybe the, the wake-up call that the coronavirus was for the American people is like, holy, you know what? Like, there's actually the world out there, and sometimes that world comes to get us even when we don't want it to, right? And it doesn't care about how many likes on Twitter you got, and it doesn't, like, it doesn't care about how many little hearts you get on Instagram. It's coming, uh, and it's going to be here, and it's going to cost people their lives. It's going to cost people their health. It's going to cost people their jobs. And so what you're seeing is a tangibility and an analog, uh, you know, life that is re-intruding on us when we frankly became pretty sedentary and comfortable with the way life went so long as we were never, you know, more than two feet away from our phone or our iPad. I, I think that just so beautifully encapsulates where we are uh, in the shift, the evolution in the body politic and the realization that politics is not just local, but it is life or death. And that sure. slowly but surely eroded since 9-11. I mean, and, and it was maybe even worse than a pre-9-11 mindset uh, of, of the uh, lack of impactfulness of political decisions, whether it's right. Supreme Court decisions or the air and water quality, which is just another way of thinking of COVID, uh, which is an environmental hazard that's immobilize all of us mm -hmm. how yeah you like you take the world for you take the world for granted until and unless you're not able to go out in it <laughs> right for, for sure i mean you you referred before to utah's conservative but but it is mm -hmm. the majority or maybe plurality is romney conservative it's not trump conservative sure right it's it you know it's it's like a lot of the it's like a lot it's like every state right Every, you know, we, we sort of splash red paint or blue paint on a state or purple state, you know, purple paint if it's Arizona or Colorado or something. But yeah, I mean, they're not, Utah is by far not monolithic, right? I mean, you look at, you know, the city of Salt Lake is one of the bluest parts of the country probably within the city limits. I live in Summit County. You know, Summit County is, a, is you know, it's 40,000 people. I'd say 25,000 are people like me who came from elsewhere. And the other 15,000 are very deep red people. Right. Um, 
But it's also a state that is driven, I think, very much by a sense of morality and a sense of decency. Um, and, and I think that that's what you're talking about when you talk about Senator Romney. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, obviously, LDS faith is, is very important here. Um, you know, maybe they're okay with, with Trump on taxes and judges, but they're certainly not okay with them on behavior. And I certainly wouldn't want to speak for the LDS church because I'm not, I'm not a part of it. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, not, it's not monolithic, nor is Kansas, nor is Oklahoma, nor any of these places. Um, but it does, you know, it does tend to go broadly conservative uh, in general. Um, and I think that's another part that you're seeing the Trump campaign just have nearly an impossible task on is because they have so little that Trump is willing to get behind as far as any sort of platform is concerned. And I don't talk about like whatever RNC weirdos will do in a room somewhere in Charlotte, but like what he sees as his vision for the country that it makes it very hard for them to attack Biden on like being a socialist when everything, you know, every bit of his, his past and his political makeup and what he said so far is evidence to the contrary. How does that topography read factor into the calculus of taking out the accomplices, um, unseating the enablers in the U S Senate who have been complicit, who have made Mm -hmm. Donald Trump an un-American president have made that or Manchurian president have made that a reality. How does the topography you discuss in Utah, then we veered over to, you mentioned Kansas, of course, that's, that's a big ask for voters there, but it was a big ask for Laura Kelly and folks said, we need a governor who's not going to uh, make our state bankrupt and ill-educated. Uh, right. Same thing true of South Carolina, North Carolina. Uh, how do you think of, of the conservatism that is going to rebel against this autocratic uh, ignorance of, of Trump? Uh, and, and do you think it will vary in terms of the share that moves over and votes for a Cunningham or, um, you know, a Jamie Harris? In, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that, I mean, look, Kansas is a really good example. Um, you know, with Laura Kelly last time. And, and Kansas is another example of, you know, um, a, a conservative state where, you know, I've spent a lot of time there. And there are a lot of Democrats in that state who who register as Republicans so they can vote in the primary because they know oftentimes that's the only, that's the only election that matters. Um, but I, you know, if you put a Chris Kobach up again, you know, there's, there's a, I would say it's an even money bet in this political environment um, that, you know, you could see in a, a democratic center from the state of, state of Kansas, uh, you know, probably be a conservative Democrat, not a progressive necessarily, but you know, the, the Eastern, or I should say the Western suburbs of Kansas city are exploding. Those people tend to be, you know, if not Democrats, probably middle of the road or slightly left of center. Um, and they're growing faster than the, the, the rest of the state. As you know, the rest is a lot of, uh, you know, wheat fields and corn fields and, and cattle ranches. Um, and so I think that what you're seeing is that, you know, there's also a level of incompetence that comes along with their complicity, right? They're just not very good at their jobs. Uh, and so many of them now, and I think Lindsey Graham is, you know, one of the chief villains in this, they see it as performative, Right. Like I go up there, I say and do things. The crazier the thing I say and do, the more press I get, the more I ramp up the people who give me money, the more attention I get, blah, 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 blah. As opposed to like you're one of a hundred who's supposed to legislate like on the future of the country and the state of the country. Um, And they don't want to do that, except with the exception of things that specifically help their, you know, political, the base of their political base, which is the judges or the tax cuts or whatever. 
Um, and that's fine. But look, I mean, you know, you, you talk, you take the, ta- the judge piece, right? You know, there used to be the, the saying, well, if you didn't like Trump, if you were conservative, you, the, the sort of Alamo of your defense was like, but Gorsuch, right? Like we got a conservative justice. Well, like, how has that worked out for you in the last two weeks? Not very well. Right. right. Like, how'd that so, work out for you today? You know, when when the Supreme Court seven to two with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh voting with the majority said, yeah, the New York grand jury can go after Trump's you know, financial information. So I think you're just seeing less and less for Trump and, and his party to run on. And let me just say as a closing thought, the Republican senators have tied themselves so closely to Trump in the last three and a half years uh, that they have very little of their own accomplishments uh, to run on you know, back in the state used to bring home the bacon or, you, you know, whatever it was. And they have so distanced themselves from even their, you know, their, their supportive constituents that I think it, it's a very tough thing for them to go home and make a, a credible case for reelection. Ad idea for you, um, which you have no, no dearth of, I'm sure. I'm sure. What was that, what was that game uh, where you played doctor and you took the little tweezers and, you know, tried not operation. To- sure. Operation. So, I mean, basically, those figures of the McSallies and the Garners and the Tillises, I mean, they are all in a Donald Trump body, uh-huh. right? So <laughs> I think that they've not just abandoned uh, due process and, and separation of powers, they, they are almost an extension of this man. They, they are the embodiment of this man. Um, and, you know, you need to tweeze them out um, because they're not acting as United States senators. They're acting as the unitary, autocratic, executive, wannabe, authoritarian Donald Trump. And, uh, and I'm sure you'll, you'll come up with some more innovative ideas than me. <laughs> but the, the, that's the, the, the reality, um, that they, they are Donald Trump. I mean, as, like you said, they've abandoned any even pretense of independence. Yeah, for sure. And it's, so, gonna, and it's, 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 it's killing their polling numbers and it's killing their fundraising. So final question, Reed. Um, we know that states like Arizona and Colorado have turned purple, if not blue now. So McSally and um, Garner are especially vulnerable. You know, if not, it's a foregone conclusion that um, very, very well-respected Democrats, uh, Kelly and Hickenlooper respectively, will, will you know, take those seats. But in those states that are more like Kansas, the Carolinas, um, others, uh, do you think that success will ultimately be more in, in what you alluded to before, whether there's a Kobach or, you know, do you expect different outcomes for different states? Like sure, with, of course. With, with Hager in Texas versus, uh, you know, Harrison in, in, in South Carolina, of those states that the, the, the topography is more like Kansas or Utah, Sure. Where do you uh, see yeah, I mean, the look, best? Every, look, I mean, every race will ultimately be different and every race will be affected by the externalities of, you know, the, the prevailing political winds and everything else. But, you know, these candidates still got to go out and win their races. And you take like a Jamie Harrison or Steve Bullock in Montana, you know, who are raising money hand over fist. They're raising it probably from a lot of very small donors. So they'll just reload if and when they need it. But they're both running great races, too. And, you know, they're both running against candidates who you know, and a Lindsey Graham, like Graham only got 66% of his, of the primary vote, right? That's not an overwhelming support, you know, level of support from, you know, and those are conservative activist Republicans, right? So, um, you know, that's not, that's not good for him because in a state like South Carolina, 
it very well might be that, you know, you have an overwhelming Democratic turnout and you just have a bunch of Republicans who are like, I don't like the guy either because I don't think he's conservative enough or I don't think he's, you know, he's not a good guy because he was friends with McCain for so long, whatever the case might be. And, you know, Harrison's running a, a good race and Bullock is the same kind of guy. I think Bullock, Hickenlooper, um, and, you know, and, and Kelly also represent, you know, candidates in, you know, either a red state like Montana or purple, or purple states like Colorado and Arizona, where they're perfectly acceptable choices for, you know, a, a, a sort of middle of the road independent or Republican voter, right? Like Mark Kelly is, you know, an astronaut, a fighter pilot. John Hickenlooper has been thought, well thought of since he, you know, opened um, brew pubs in Denver and then became mayor and governor. Bullock is, you know, a solid, moderate Democrat in a place where, you know, um, you know, maybe, you know, they've, they've elected Democrats to the Senate before, so it's not an unheard of thing. And they're all running good races. And obviously, it's always easier to run with a tailwind uh, than a headwind. But I think that it's each of these races will be different. But I think that they're all going to really have to these Republicans are all like the, the map is expanding for the Democrats, which means it's expanding for the Republicans. And that's not good news for them. Reed Galen, co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me.